Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Emily Weber, to discuss the challenges of healthcare data and how mismanaging data can impact your organization. Take it away, Emily. My name is Emily Weber, and I'm an attorney with Foley focusing on uh, transactional compliance and regulatory matters, mainly with healthcare providers, uh, but certainly a lot of data issues with startups and especially in the innovation area. So I've been practicing for about 13 years in the area of the health law space. And for today's podcast, we are going to talk about the challenges of healthcare data and the challenges in healthcare, and most importantly, how mismanaging data can impact your organization. So today, I'd like to introduce Ian O'Neill. Ian is the general counsel of WellTalk, and WellTalk has developed a platform to track and manage consumer health actions. They take a data-driven, personalized approach to get consumers actively involved in their health. And Ian, it is a pleasure to have you as part of our podcast. And would you like to take a moment to tell us about yourself and a brief introduction to WellTalk? Absolutely, Emily. Thank you for inviting me. So um, yeah, I have been practicing this space for about 15, 16 years now. And I can lead the legal operations group over at WellTalk. Uh, WellTalk, we have a platform and a push service that effectively uses every kind of form of communication online, from an online platform to text messaging, to direct mail, to email marketing, to outbound and inbound phone calls uh, and sensors to um, help consumers kind of take control of their action. We're a B2B platform, so we primarily work with the providers, with the healthcare insurers, with Medicare, and with Medicaid, the different parties that have an interest in reducing what we call the morbidity curve, which is the idea being that if your consumers and individuals or patients know more about the different determinants that lead to healthcare situations and healthcare kind of uh, issues, they can take better control over their own choices they can reduce the morbidity curve, which effectively means you can reach the age of 70, 18, 90 without suffering that downward curve in your the general well-being and health and state of health. That is fantastic. And we're both here in Denver and it's exciting to be um, doing another podcast with you again. So I think our first question is, and really the issue is that we're going to lay the groundwork for the stated discussion. Uh, we want to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we're speaking the same language. And we're going to do this by um, identifying the terms so that everyone listening understands data and the rules that govern data. One of the first things we want to talk about are the general rules of what you can and cannot do with data. And so generally, the way I operate is that there's different types of data. So there's just data. There's de-identified protected health information. There's protected health information. And then there's personally identifiable information. Those are certainly terms we're going to be using today. Certainly in the PHI, so the protected health information world, the general rule is that you have to get someone's consent in order to disclose PHI. And certainly there's a number of exceptions. 
that allow entities to disclose PHI. And the biggest one is without without a patient's consent, and that's for treatment, payment, and healthcare operations issues. But then there's a number of other transactional agreements that you can put in place, like you can have an IRB approve uh, research. You could have that serves as a privacy board. You could have a limited data set. But the golden rule is that you need to get consent. And then there's a number of other issues related to you can have a uh, you know a court order or you can disclose right. for certain law enforcement reasons. Now, while I know a lot about PHI, you know more than me <laughs> certainly about PII and the other data. So they're right. general rules. Right. So Emily, with respect to different types of data, obviously PHI is the most essential one. Uh, for WellTalk, we have fully enriched PHI files, for example, for almost 300 million people and growing every day. So we have you know, full HITRUS certification and SOC Type 2 certifications, full audits, the entire data security team. That can't be, you know, it absolutely can't be undersold on how important that is. The way I see it, though, is that's still only one flavor of data. In today's day and age, data is pretty much one of your, not only is it one of your most um, valuable assets, it's one of your most kind of durable characteristics about you. And that everything you do, every move you make, every kind of action you take creates data. And so all of that is out there and is a very powerful way to help kind of shape and use and influence the world we're in. So, for example, at WellTalk, we will take PHI for a provider for whom we're providing the platform and whose you know, various members or users are using our platform to do, you know, to manage and track certain health conditions. We use things called, basically the way our platform is works is we have a system where we create things called action cards, which are really just interactive ways of motivating people to do specific acts. They're based on very deep analytics and social determinants so that we know what people are most likely to respond to. And the provider will you know, use those to have, for example, part of its population manage their weight, part of the population um, be more diligent about getting regular screenings for things like mammograms. And, and so that? that's exactly where I was going with this conversation. So to get that type of utility out of data, the PHI is obviously you know, the core of that because the provider has that PHI and they are providing the, the, the health management of that individual. But PHI is also limited in that you can only use it for very specific things. And so if you want to use it for going beyond traditional care and you're not just asking, you know, your one doctor to give a second opinion, it becomes more restrictive. But if you layer and supplement that PHI with various forms of things like publicly available data. So that you know demographics, you know other data you can get from companies, you know, like Experience and Equifax and credit bureaus of the world. You can get things like claims data. You can layer all of these, both publicly available, private data, data personal information, and PHI and demographics together. And then you can create what is effectively an incredibly powerful proxy for just about anybody out there. And that's the day and age we live in. And that's why we see these trends of constantly kind of evolving laws trying to stay ahead of this as we realize how much data is not just our identity in the sense of numbers or letters on a piece of paper for identity theft, but it's our identity and how we act, who we are, what we do, even down to very tangible results. Like, would we respond to a certain reward 
that would incentivize us to go and get our blood glucose checked regularly, would incentivize us to lose 20 pounds, that would incentivize us to have regular regular doctor checkups. Or to use things. this type of medication. Exactly. Um, you know, the entire, we work with, on our platform, we have, the best way I describe it is not only do we have our own platform, but we have lots of what we call connect partners, which are third parties, other technology companies, health tech companies, that effectively make their offerings and their services available as an integrated offering. And so think of it like the iPhone with the app, uh, with the app store. But you have lots and lots of different ways data is used there. We have folks that come in for prescription medications that will use you know, very precise data to be able to help you and your provider know exactly what the most effective medication would be, not just in terms of how effective this is for you, but how much it's covered by your health insurance plan, how likely you are to take it, how likely it is to interact with other medications you take, how much somebody with your particular background or demographics, you know, it may be your age, your gender, your, your, your diet or anything like that is likely to take this. That's just one example of where data is a constant flow. And we've gone past the stage in just about any health tech business. We have gone past the stage where you can compartmentalize it and say, we only need to worry about PHI, or we only need to worry about PII, or we only need to worry about PI, because to get to where we are and the power of data and to harness it, we have to create this rich data overlay. Mm -hmm. And so as far as laws go, and I know we're going to talk about it in a few seconds, it is somewhere akin to Theseus in the labyrinth <laughs> to try and analyze these on any given day for sure. a particular purpose. And I think that's a great segue into saying that certainly we know about HIPAA and high tech. And to all of our listeners out there, many of you will be in states where certainly here in Colorado, we have our own data privacy law. So I encourage everyone to really, you know, look into those state law issues because they could be more stringent than federal law. But even there's a lot of case law that's coming out. And I think right. the University of Chicago Google case is the most poignant case right now because that really dealt with the issue of data, who says that they own the data, who said that they consented to the data. And I think the, the point that I'm taking away from that case is in that event, the entities, you know, the defendants in that case are essentially saying, we complied with law. The fact that the government hasn't kept up doesn't mean that we didn't comply with law. We complied with law. And then the plaintiff is saying, yes, but you disclosed location and Google because you also could use all the information from your phone. You could then track who exactly we're talking about for each individual case. And so then the plaintiffs are claiming, you know, that they are going to have some sort of ownership in that data and therefore they should make money off of whatever Google's right. making money off of. And so I think that will be very telling in the next year or two when that's decided. And then I have a feeling that will probably go to this because it's such a big deal. Right. And that's an ongoing discussion. I'm sure you see it in your practice. I know I saw it all the time when I was in private practice. I definitely see it now in house at a health tech platform, you know, with literally kind of, as I said, hundreds of millions of effective users and data files and you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue each year coming through um, and that type of velocity, the, constant, the discussion is constant on to who actually owns data. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it really depends on who you're talking with because I've heard it every which way, even from internally the same client, where some people will say, well, the patient owns the data. Some people will say, no, the patient has access to the data and that the provider owns the data. Some will say that the health system owns the data. Someone well, says no one owns the data right. and all it is 
This is just copies of a set of numbers. And I will tell you, I don't think that there's any one right position. On right. Well, an ownership is also a variable based upon usage. Mm -hmm. I would say if you are going to do any analysis with respect to ownership of data, you have to have an X and Y access with respect to usage too. An example I'll give you out of a kind of a practice point of a, a, a deal that I've been recently negotiating my way through. You have two, two entities, each of which is a covered entity, each of which provides some distinct portion of health tech, uh, whether one is the provider, one is a health tech application provider. But because the patient at one point is receiving access to the health tech provider via the first covered entity, well, they, they belong as a data subject. They're effectively bound to that covered entity number one. But then once they access the health tech application and they sign up and they agree to their terms of use and they start to provide different data on monitoring biometrics, they're effectively becoming a data subject that is bound to covered entity number two. And covered entity number one still needs and has rights to use that data. There's an exception under HIPAA for coordinated care, so it can be shared, absolutely. But you really now have the same data being provided there's nothing different about the data, but both entities are of a covered entity, but theoretically are the oh, one collecting the, the PHI yeah. and all the data. Um, and by virtue of the fact that I'm giving information to covered entity one out of one side of my mouth, I'm giving the same information to covered entity two, and they don't have to talk, but they are talking, I now have this dual data, data ownership. And that's where usage has completely become the dictator on who actually owns the data there. And I know that we'll get into this more when we talk about data monetization, but I think we also have to think of the issue of the numbers itself, the core data, whether you own that or if individuals are really saying they own the outcome of the data, right? And so it's sort of an academic discussion. Before we get to that, I think that there's some really interesting developments that you are very much on top of. Um, and maybe we can spend just a couple, maybe 15 to 30 seconds, if at all possible, and I'm going to sort of name them out to you and you can um, briefly go into them. So one would be FCC developments. Yeah, I mean, uh, FTC and FCC, I mean, in all of these areas, there's always a question, there's always developments going on with respect to how the healthcare exemptions apply. So FCC, for example, they have governance over things like the TCPA, and so therefore using text message tied to data to send out messages to try and incentivize people is you know, sometimes covered under the TCPA exemption uh, put in place by the FCC, sometimes not if it's not truly a healthcare message. And so that's constantly changing. They're constantly issuing new guidance. There is a lot of action going on in that space right now with uh, kind of deciding on what the scope and the scale and the boundaries of the healthcare exemption for the TCPA is. So that's a great example. The FTC similarly has a lot of action going on now, right now with respect to determining you know, healthcare exemptions and if certain types of data and certain types of messaging are exempt from the various rules, you know, things like telemarketing sales rule and things like that um, in terms of the type of messaging they are. So that's a constant moving target you need to keep in your sites if you are in any way using data in a way that involves communication, sure. outbound communication. And then the two other I'll ask you to briefly touch on, one is GDPR. And GDPR is one of those things that we all thought was going to be kind of in the rear view mirror as of 2019. 
after it was implemented in May 2018, and it proves to constantly, it's constantly still be a moving target with respect to how it's interpreted. Um, you know, GDPR is obviously the uh, European General Data Privacy Regulation with respect to you know how you can and can't collect data, what you can do with it, how you need to protect it. What, you, what rights you need to pass along to the data subject if they're Europeans, rights to be forgotten, rights to be kind of um, know what's on file, rights to change what's on file. Obviously, that becomes a kind of larger issue when you have competing data requirements, especially record retention requirements. Um, you know, if you have various, if you're keeping records for governmental reasons, if you're keeping records for you know, kind of contractual reasons that where you've agreed with a provider who is a partner, who is a client or a partner that has I don't know Medicare or Medicaid retention agreements, various states now have flow down requirements, and for any of their Medicare and Medicaid patients, you collect data on their Florida is a big example, data security requirements. And so GDPR is one of those laws that was written completely and totally without any regard to obviously any American. State laws, and so that's you always have to do that analysis if there's any chance any European data subject is involved. Yep. Okay, and then the last one, which is I think one of the most interesting new laws, is the China Cybersecurity Law. Right. Again, we're still kind of getting our heads around that, but uh, following on from the GDPR development, where seeing the Asian Pacific region, China in particular, also have its own developments with respect to who owns data, what data can and cannot be used for. It's coming into effect as we speak and next year throughout 2020 will be a large issue for anybody that actually collects data from any person in China. Um, basically, as what it boils down to is it's going to be almost impossible to get data out of China. It means if it's collected there or once it's in there. Uh, obviously, if it's collected there, then that's a different analysis because you probably are there for a valid business reason. You have localization, local servers, that type of thing is there. The issue is, one, if you are using some kind of cross-border play and you have a reason for data going in and out, once it's in, it's in. As you say, it has to be saved on a server located within the PRC. It has to remain in the, uh, in the PRC unless there's various ways to get out of their very narrow exemptions. Um, and so the problem is collection or even transmitting data in to the PRC is going to result in lots and lots of kind of uh, restructuring uh, with respect to commercial transactions, with respect to um, how you use it on a B2B type approach to actually get that data back out. I mean, basically, it is a lockbox. It goes right. in and it stays in unless you can get it out through any of the narrow keyholes. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. All right. So let's go next into the second issue of diving. We're going to dive into data monetization and touch on this issue we were talking about before about who owns the data, who is the who, and sort of who can, has access to data and give authorization access. So we certainly, in our field um, refer a lot to the term data lake. So maybe you can talk a little bit about data lake, what that means to you. And I think I'll, after that, I'll speak about what that means, I think, on the provider side. Yeah. Side. I mean, data lake, I think, is one of those terms that you're hearing more and more, especially in the health tech space, as we realize the power of layered data. Um, you know, as we try to figure out things along the lines of how most, how most effectively to kind of move people to go towards beneficial actions, whether it's a you know a health action, as we said earlier, or, or even outside the health tech space, as you start to realize the power of data to really try and help kind of um, create change or create action, 
data lake is one of those expressions you're going to hear more and more of where you realize instead of having a database for PHI and a database for your publicly available but privately collected information that you purchase from someone like LexisNexis or you know, Equifax or any of those guys, or to have a marketing database that you are kind of keeping segregated all of your marketing information, you realize the value that this should all be stored in one large data lake. You're kind of more enhanced security around, more enhanced control over, but the that also comes with more enhanced uh, um, complexity in terms of managing things like permissions, managing things like um, access and how it's actually used and, and use digital and protocols. If, if people, I think that a lot of entities want the ability to once they withdraw their consent to be able to go back and say you do not either. I think it's a different issue of saying you do not have authority to use my data anymore. To saying Get my data out of the lake. Right. In some ways, it actually it's helps, right? It's a technical issue. It's a very technical issue. And, so, and in some ways, that's probably one of the primary drivers for this trend we're seeing, right? Is we have laws like GDPR. We have laws like the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, um, all of which, and it's a trend we're seeing kind of move across, all of which have this concept in that really goes back to what you said, that the individual owns their data. Right? And so if I own my data, I should have a right to tell you to change it. I should have a right to tell you to delete it. It's really not a new concept. We've seen the right to be forgotten kind of enshrined in European law for almost a decade now when it first came around through various kind of Google and search engine uh, lawsuits. We've seen it here in the US for almost two decades where it really kind of existed in a very limited way for, with respect to minors under the age of 13 from Harper. Um, so the concept itself was not a new concept, but maybe individuals should have a right to say what you can and can't know about them. But from a legal point of view, we're seeing this rapid momentum of laws that are actually enshrining it in a statutory framework. Not only do I have a right to know what you know about me and how you store it, I have a right to tell you to delete it, to not use it, to change it. And that includes all of your downstream kind of uh, providers. So, the, so all the derivatives and all the service providers. And that's where I think the data lake concept, part of the momentum is from, is in the system that we kind of all grew up in in the last decade, you may have, you know, in your case, Emily Weber, and say your social security number or your age or your driver's license number or your address or and, you know, your family kind of size and how many children you have and all these disparate pieces of information. In the past, you know, it would have been, I would have had my database and then I would have had 30 vendors. I would have had a hosting provider. I would have had a direct mail provider. I would have had a list management provider. I would have shared it with every service provider that provides a service for which I need them to kind of have that information, whether they mail something out to you because I'm fulfilling something, whether they're going to email you, whether they are going to run analytics for me to know what offer you would be susceptible to, whether they are going to process your benefits so that I know if you are covered by insurance, any of that type of stuff. The idea behind Data Lake really is you all these complex kind of layers and all these points of ownership are much more manageable if you have this one big pool that gives you, like I said, all this ability to layer and to search and to manage and to give you this depth. But it also means if you come to me and say, hey, I'm Jane Doe, please delete everything you know about me. Or even I'm Jane Doe, please tell me everything you know about me. Your data map is that much flatter if you can say, here's everything I know about you from my data lake, as opposed to 
give me a couple of days. I need to ask 36 different mm-hmm. vendors to tell me what they have in their database that I've shared with them. And if you tell me to delete it, I need to now send out data requests, deletion requests to 36 different vendors and hope that they do so. And I need to do so in a way that I'm going to have whatever assurances are going to be required as the laws continue to evolve. GDPR is probably you know, the strictest, right? We have to get back within a specific time frame to let the data subject know if we have deleted their information or if, or if not, why not, and what actions are going to take, be taken so they can go to their local data uh, protection authority. Um, CCPA has something not quite as um, intrusive, but it's still along the same kind of conceptual lines, and that's the floodgates opening for that rolling across all the different state privacy laws across the U.S. for the same type of thing, where ultimately, you know, within the next five years or so, or decade at the latest, we'll probably be in a stage where every state allows an individual to control who, who knows what about them and to delete it subject to your know, applicable restrictions on the law. I can't ask you to delete you know, things that you have a right to know, and that's where it becomes very complicated. Mm-hmm. Because, and I would also say that it's actually incredibly difficult because, well, the new world order seems to be that people have the right to control their data, have access, as you mentioned, know where it's going. We're also now in a world of data right. where whether it's my cell phone or me walking down the street and there's a picture of me, I mean, everything that we do is data. So it's hard to reconcile those two issues. And I think as we talk about more of the issue of data and derivatives and what's coming from that, I don't know, there's the technical issue of saying, can you actually even delete downstream derivatives of that data? Or if there's an innovation or an improvement to something based off of my data, do I say that I have some right well, that's a good question, right? Because we deal with that all the time. And I've in private practice, I had lots of clients that dealt with that. And in my current position, we deal with it, which is the question is, where do you draw the difference between data and data constructs? So for example, that's right. If I'm, And then once you get into a stage where you have business to business to consumer or business to business to business to consumer, or you, know, you have provider to patients and you have all of this type of thing, you get into a more nuanced set, right? Where it's like, where do you get the consent? I mean, if I take 20 million people's data files, even though it contains something along the lines of PHI, if I take those, that PHI and I throw it on my database, it's very easy, right? Because I am governed by HIPAA. I'm probably governed by the state, state law. law with respect to if I have a data breach, depending on what state I'm in. In Colorado, you know, we have our own, but all 50 states now have some variation of that. I'm probably governed by maybe my contractual relationships with who gave me that data in the first place. I've agreed to some standards, maybe an ISO standard. I might do a high, um, you know, a high trust certification. We do lots of those in our databases. I might use some kind of audit standard that I've agreed to do in order to show I'm keeping it safe in a in a manner that can be trusted, but that's still relatively simple. And you're also, I, I would submit to you that you're also governed by a, if an individual signs a consent, what's in the consent? Absolutely. And I think it's very often that the consents do not match reality. Well, that's exactly right. That's, and then the problem is consents don't keep up with reality because then the next point comes, that's all very simple, but then I start to do stuff about data. Sure. Right. So the next layer of complexity to me is I share it or I just use it to 
do a function. So I share it with a direct mail list for them because I want to send lots of pieces of mail out. That's I still it out myself. Right. I try I manipulate that data myself. But then you get into layers of complexity about what if I do things that aren't just using that data, but they're and this is where I, it becomes ironic because the, the very laws that help over rules that help kind of protect the individual and help us use the data, you know, rules on things like de-identification and aggregation, um, they start to kind of also work the other way that they give more rights to the people that have done the de-identification and aggregation. Because if I aggregate 20 million people's PHI together in order to see what type of person is likely to respond to a text message to go visit their doctor. Well, the model I built from that doesn't contain any PHI. I don't know that Jane Doe was that person. I don't know that John Doe was that person. I just know that if I was to send a text message to this type of person, 70% of them would listen to it and go to their doctor. If I send a text message to that same group, 30% wouldn't go unless we called them by a phone. And now I have a product of that data. I have a model or an algorithm and or a scorecard. And who owns that at that point? And there's lots of, lots of analyses from older companies and older industries, right? Like a credit report or a credit bureau. It's pretty well settled that credit bureaus and folks like Fair Isaac have always argued they own the product of the output. It gets trickier when we're in the health space because before you even get that data, it's gone through a round of different laws and different consents to get to, you know, the healthcare provider has collected it from the doctor who has provided it into their medical records in the first place when they were seeing the patient and the health system. And, you know, the payer has then decided if they're going to pay out on that, maybe the payers are one that provide the data because they want to model it. So that data, even before you get to the identify aggregate portion, you've got to worry about the permissioning stream. And, before you, and then you can own, you know, or not own, depending on what it is, things like the product and the output. So, the reality is in today's, basically in today's world, the data about you is not just information about you anymore. Data about you really is, you were right with a cell phone. Data about you really is, you know, kind of a fundamental characteristic of all of us. It's, uh, you know, there's, I, I liken it to, you know, there's a, a tenant in Buddhism, right? Which is that all people are just a physical case for a spiritual being that is passing through and um, all you're doing with your body is moving energy around i liken data to the same type of thing right now all we are is carriers of information about us and all we're doing is moving information about us and people can use that information to also make us move in certain ways sure sure and i think that there's an argument at least to say that we do need to recognize that because data is everywhere is it reasonable and I'm, maybe that's not a legal question but is it reasonable to say that you know one has the ability to control all of their data looking at all these different state laws especially that are being promulgated or is it just like this is where how we live now and that it is all data and as such i mean i think that's a this is a kind of a good segue into our last issue we're going to look at which is the different perspectives of of entities out there looking at, at data and we could say, look at health systems and providers, which I think often say, well, we get consent from the patient to be able to, depending on the health system, use their data on a wide variety of uses. And so they may say, well, and even I think certainly um, there's many clients who differ between the client themselves about who owns the data. But they say, well, we're going to use this data to sort of certainly 
make improvements on healthcare to make, you know, ultimately they want to make healthcare more efficient and right. more um, and less costly. I mean, there's different ways to do that. And, and as long as, you know, you can get consent from a patient to be able to do that and say, we're going to be able to use your data. This is outside of the normal HIPAA consent. There's an argument to be say, as long as the patient has meaningful consent to whatever is being done with their data, then ultimately that's it. Bottom Absol line. Absolutely. And I would say HIPAA even supports the idea that that is the philosophical thrust behind it, right? And that HIPAA is one of those data laws, but while at the same time it requires very specific consent and very specific publication of privacy notices, it has a fundamental kind of philosophical bent built into it that there are lots of exceptions like for coordinated care where you can share data without patient consent. And so it's one of those kind of very complex and nuanced laws that depending again on the usage and the scenario, you, you have to be very careful. And that's why from, I think it does boil down in some ways to a legal perspective that uh, your permissioning in path of how you get permission when you collect the data is probably one of the single most important legal documents that you have in this area. Because even if you don't need to have that permission, if your permissioning path protects you, you're in great shape. If you do need to have that permission, and your permissioning path does not get the right consents, then you're in terrible shape. So it's one of those scenarios where the best legal advice I think I've ever received or would ever give is, what's the harm in getting the consent? I mean, marketing folks I know always have a view that it's like, well, it suppresses you know, kind of response rates or things like that, but we're talking about health information here. We're not talking about marketing information, and the reality is, I can't use PHI for marketing purposes anyway. Right. So I need so, so permissioning path is absolutely vital to make sure for that. That's right. Process. And part of it is, and I think a sort of a lesson learned is spending a lot of time being creative and thoughtful in those consents and not thinking about how the data is being used now, but thinking about how it could possibly absolutely. be used in the future. Because the what I see clients getting um, frustrated with, understandably so is when data is being used for a use unanticipated in the original consent, then they have to go back and re-consent patients. And then the question is, if someone doesn't re-consent a patient for whatever reason, they can't get in touch with them or whatever reason, does that mean that the consent is being withdrawn? With medical devices, and I, I certainly know that Welltalk's not a medical device, but I'm curious to see sort of how, what your position is in, in your industry on the consent issue. You, well, and we do, what do you say? and medical devices, we do interact with companies that provide medical devices and that use medical devices. And, you know, our tech partners at our medical device companies, you know, they are some of the most kind of diligent and buttoned up with respect to consent because, you know, there are all sorts of rules, whether it's under CMS rules, whether it's under various state rules, we go to biometrics and medical devices by their nature tend to collect biometric information because they're somehow tracking something on your body, whether it's a diabetes monitor, whether it's a heart rate monitor, whether it's a you know, small molecule monitor, they, they are by their nature much more likely to be collecting much more restricted information. And so permissioning consent is even more important when some kind of durable device is involved. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what happens if not only if you don't collect the correct consent in the first place, and then you have to re-consent and you don't get that, not only is it not getting a second consent, but is it implied withdrawal of the original consent, but you know, also you then also get into other issues that go along the lines of you know, consent has to be informed. 
on the HIPAA, uh, just as it does on the most kind of sensitive data laws. And if you are hitting people up with multiple consents, each dealing with a slightly different but highly technical medical issue, at what point are you stepping over the degree that folks like you know the HHS kind of experts will step in and say, how the heck is that informed? You just confused the blazers out of that person with 10 different consents, right. each with a very highly technical kind of explanation of what you're going to use it for and why. And they're supposed to know what you're using that for. I mean, one simple singular consent is always going to be better than 12 kind of focused, small technical things on different medical purposes. The last one I'd like to talk about is just the general issue of monetization. And it seems that for us sort of traditional healthcare attorneys, we look at data as just the data in the medical record. But then there's a billion other companies out there that are making billions of dollars Absolutely. off of not medical record data, of just general data. And I think it's always, it astounds me how much money is being made off of data and why entities want that data. Well, the reality is data is the power to know um, about the individual, but in knowing the individual, it's also the power to make the individual do something, right? Whether it's make them buy something, make them uh, kind of subscribe to something. And that's what we see outside of this area. But that's also true within this area. And what I would propose, what I put out there and I would posit is, you know, monetization is not and shouldn't be an ugly word. Um, monetization for monetization's sake sounds extremely crass and mercenary in the context of healthcare. And that I would agree with. But what monetization really is, right, is what we're talking about there is companies doing something to incentivize specific behavior. Behaviors. So it's almost utilization. It's utilization. And so if a company is using that data to utilize healthy actions, you know, for example, it's helping make sure that children get their immunizations, uh, making sure that people get their regular doctor's checkups, making sure that they take their medicines, take their medicines that they do certain physical or psychological acts Even that will help like alleviate depression. Up. For us attorneys that sit, and exactly. sit on our butt all day, it's nice to say, get up. Get up. Walk Even, around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just high. it's even some kind of social using social determinants to help engineer healthy and well-being behavior is utilization and the monetization of companies doing that in a way that they are viable is not necessarily the kind of ugly word that sure. is associated with. And I don't think it's mutually exclusive to say you can incentivize and encourage healthy behaviors by this sort of data, whether we're calling it monetization or utilization, and at the same time have companies that make money off of it. Absolutely. We do live in a capitalist society. Right. <laughs> right. And even, you know, in, frankly, even individuals are subject to that. Um, you know, incentivization of individual actions using some kind of reward, some kind of gamification. You know, you do these 10 things and you will get a gift card mm -hmm. is an incredibly powerful incentive to help people that may not otherwise have done those things for their own well-being or health, uh, may not even have known that those 10 things were things that would be helpful to them. So it's even an education component to them. Mm -hmm. And so the monetization of data sums up, you know, it, it brings up these big kind of scary images of Google uh, being some kind of shadow government, some with a star chain, whether it's tracking right. everything you're doing. Um, and that's really not what the industry right. is talking about. What the industry is talking about is using 
what we know about people to create some type of models to really get people to work in a much healthier, better way, whether it's, you know, health insurance companies that want to effectively monetize the data by making sure that the people they insure that the people they insure and they cover don't have expensive procedures, expensive medical conditions because they were avoided earlier on or they manage and mitigate them. It's people like employers wanting to incentivize their employee base to be much more kind of active and healthy and mindful of their uh, wellness by using the data and what we know about them to create social determinants and social models to make them kind of uh, take those actions. It's, you know, healthcare providers trying to stop things like unnecessary conditions or repeat conditions or frequent flyers by kind of incentivizing and using the data to actually get them to help themselves. And it's even as simple as saying data could be when I go on my Peloton and it says, you've worked out two days in a row. Exactly. Keep it up. Work out right. a third day. It could be as simple as that like, and as complicated in the healthcare world of saying, don't take this medicine because it might kill you. Exactly. But oh. we only know that by looking at these 15,000 different exactly. aspects. Exactly. We only know that because 50 million people have been analyzed and we know 45 different data points. And by the way, we know from a model that you have six of those data points that say this no is good. not the right one for you. Right. That's so. That's exactly right. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, I could talk with you forever. Hopefully all the listeners found this to be helpful. And if you have any questions at all, please feel free to contact me, Emily Weber at Foley and Lardner or Ian O'Neill at WellTalk. Thank you, Emily. And thank you to Ian O'Neill from WellTalk for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com.